Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. A little hiatus over the holidays and New Year, but we're back in 2023 with the uh, first episode. So I hope that you guys all have a prosperous, uh, abundant, fulfilling, successful year in 2023. And, and if you've got goals and plans, I hope that um, you're making the best use of your membership, the Blair Technique Membership Association, to, to reach those goals. So if there's anything we could do as a society to help you level up this year, let us know. We're always open to ideas about how we can add value to membership and and make you more successful as a Blair chiropractor. Um, so with all that out of the way, my guest, Dr. Jeff Hanna, uh, previous guest, we had a few, I mean, that might've been a couple of years ago at this point when we had our original conversation and we've been playing a little bit of phone tag and get message tag trying to coordinate. And Jeff's been going through a bunch of different transitions. So I'll let him explain some of that, but we finally were able to coordinate here to sit down and share some important information about things that we look at every single day, the uh, objective indicators that are our primary in the Blair technique and and how we use those to manage patients. So before we get into his research and uh, the findings there, Doc, if you'd like to just give folks a little bit of a you know overview of what you've been up to and and life and practice and where you stand right now, and then we'll jump into the literature here. All right. Well, thanks, Doctor Stenberg, for uh, inviting me back out for this. So for those of you who uh, may or may not know, um, I had been practicing in Australia for uh, 15 years, but I have uh, now sold my practice. I'm technically between jobs at the moment, but I have relocated uh, back to the States. And so this is actually the first public announcement of it. I have joined uh, the team at Clear Chiropractic in Spokane, Washington. And so looking forward to doing and creating some really awesome stuff. It feels like I've been called up to the big leagues, I have Mm -hmm. to admit. Um, So definitely um, stepping up my game and looking forward to getting that one uh, going and rolling here pretty quick. So that's been quite enough to keep me um, busy um, the last little while, let alone the last three years. Yeah. And I think most folks can relate to the idea that just in the last few years, like you said, things have changed so much that a lot of people are reevaluating their, you know, their options, you know, and seeing where they're at and what they want to do. And the climate in different communities and countries has changed a lot, the practicing climate politically. And uh, so, you know, opportunities come up and the clear team is um, obviously like we've had Dr. Rache Bell on the podcast. So go back and listen to her perspective about, you know, chiropractic and team and the way things are being built up there. And uh, Dr. Becky Ellis there and a few others, like it's a, it's a power team right now. And two more new docs, Dr. Zach and shoot, what is his wife's name? Uh, Catherine. So Kat. Catherine. Yes. And then also Catherine. don't forget uh, Dr. Uh, Becca uh, Buzichev. So she's yes. also here. So this is a, a really, really talented uh, team. So I am, you know, arguably I'm the low man on the totem pole. That is fascinating. That is awesome. Yeah. And, and you know what? We're going to talk about this in the future. Uh, I've already got it. And we we kind of 
alluded to this earlier in a personal conversation. We got to revisit that conversation of what it's like going from clinic owner and solo doc, you know, with no other doctors on your team to being a part of a team like that and what the uh, pros and cons and the challenges and opportunities and how it, you know, how that all feels. So we'll give you, you know, six months to a year to get that under your belt. And then we'll, we'll follow back up and see, you know, what you have to say about all of it. So in the meantime, a lot of Blair technique to happen for you and for the team there at Clear. So the focus of today's conversation, uh, and, and many of you that are on the Blair Technique Facebook page would have seen this post a while back. Uh, Dr. Hannah did some research in his clinic uh, surrounding the reliability of the indicators that we use in the Blair Technique, both thermography, leg checks, and then the articular misalignments that we see on either x-rays or CBCTs. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to pursue because you know, there's one perspective is, well, we know this stuff works, right? We see it every day. It's, it's reliable. There's clinical utility, clinical utility, and we know that it gets us the results that we expect. The other part of it is, well, do we have any literature to support the efficacy of these, uh, you know, of this technique with these indicators? And the short answer is not really uh, on a big scale. So we've got case studies and case series and reports on outcomes, but as far as our day-to-day checks and indicators, it's like, yeah, there's, you know, there's been thermography research, there's been x-ray research, there's been, you know, leg check research and different techniques. But for what we're doing, you know, let's let's put those things together. So Dr. Hannah embarked on his uh, his own pilot studies, basically, of leg length inequality, articular misalignments, and, and thermography. So before we get into the findings and maybe even the design of the study, why did you think it was important to do this? I mean, what motivated you to, to put this together? A uh, little bit of stupidity um, in part. The first one that actually started, it was just my own, um, just my own interest. Um, it was the uh, one where I was looking at the different uh, patterns of misalignments and wanted to know what their prevalence was. And so what I did was I basically, it's like, okay, well, when I would have a, a new patient come in and I would do films and um, in Australia, you can't um, take your own cone beam. So this was all uh, digital radiography. Uh, so we did the BPs, the laterals, uh, the Blair laterals, and then the, uh, the pro views. And I just wanted to see how prevalent were the individual findings. Because we'd oftentimes, you know, quoted saying that, oh, yeah, yeah, ASs are more common than, uh, than PIs. Well, by how much? I was just I was just curious. And so what I did was I just started to tabulate every single you know person when they were coming in. And that actually started uh, probably two, three years ago, something like that. Um, and I presented like a, an earlier version of that to just a, a general lay group of chiropractors that you know like, whoa, that is interesting. So that one was the start of that. The other two, pilot studies, they were born out of, uh, again, stupidity. Um, again, this I, I kept this as a secret for a long time, but the project is far enough now, it's not a secret anymore, that uh, I have been um, asked by the board to be working on developing a textbook, you know, for the, the Blair technique that goes beyond the current manuals that we have that serves as this is the source, the reference 
for how this is done, not just for all of us as members, but most importantly, then for anybody who's doing future research for legitimacy in the schools saying, okay, you know, you know, where's your evidence base? Here's your evidence base. Here you go. And so one of the chapters that I was working on was uh, the uh, thermography and thermology. And I'm questioning at some point, because as you guys know, I've put together a few teaching modules over the, the course of the, the past based on the, the KCUC, KCUCS work, uh, the DEF analysis. But I was curious, you know, it's like, okay, we can do this pretty reliably, you know, even though there are no studies, but, you know, is this valid at all? You know, some of the conclusions that we're, we're coming up with. Hmm. And so I was thinking about it, okay, the nature of any given line if you think about it there are three possibilities it's straight it goes left or it goes right and we're not looking at the um the, the quality so that the steepness of the, the line per se but it could go left it could go right or it could go to the middle and i had done some preliminary um numbers then simply put based on statistics and possible uh, probabilities that okay what would be the probability if you had the line go to the left at the exact same spot on three consecutive readings. You know, what's the probability of that? And I started to write down this, you know, thought experiment for the, the textbook as a way of, you know, substantiating the art that we're doing. So it's not, we're not just doing this because BJ said so and because Blair did it. You know, is there actually, you know, some mathematical significance to this? And I had... Um, shared a, a preliminary version of the, the chapter with Dr. Forrest. Um, and he shared something with uh, his son-in-law, who is uh, a little bit of a genius. By that, I mean a lot. Um, he is a statistician. I'm not sure if he's an engineer or if he teaches math or something like that. But I mean, th that is his bread and butter. And he actually replied to me and he said, you know, Jeff, what you're doing looks to be pretty right, but it would be a lot better if you actually had real data. I mean, you're presuming, and this was what my presumption was, is that it was equal probability that you'd have a, a third of the time it would be a straight line, a third of the time it would go to the left, and a third of the time it would go to the right. And he said, is that necessarily true? And so, like, well, I don't know if that's necessarily true. So what I then said is, okay, okay. well, what I'm going to do is for the next however many consecutive people. And the original thought was, okay, I'm going to do this for the next 25 consecutive people. I'm going to take their very first reading, whatever that very first thermal scan is. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide it into eight segments. So C0 to 1, 1 to 2, divide it equally because I'm doing the, the scans the consistent way like that. And I am going to then measure the relative steepness and the direction of each line. And I'm going to say that, okay, if it is plus or minus, you know, 10%, I'm going to say that it's straight. So it's not ruler straight, but it'll be straight-ish. Yeah. If it is beyond nine degrees, then it's either going to the left or to the right. And I originally, I looked at it in terms of breaks versus heat swings as well, but I ultimately um, put them together, but I do still have the data to differentiate between the two. And I subdivided each group so that if you saw different characteristics with each zone, that it was a certain percent of, you know, that. So for example, if it was straight 
the whole region between C0 and C1, it was straight the whole region. But if it broke to the left and then broke back to the right, I would just do like a, a 50% differential like that. So, you know, not exact, but it got me, um, you know, some interesting data. So I did that for the first 25 people and I started to, to see a trend there. And so um, Dr. Forrest's son-in-law, his name is Freddie. He said, you know, Dr. Hannah, this looks really good. A hundred would be better. Because like, oh. I'm doing this all manually. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize at the time that there was actually a way in the Titronic software where you could actually extract the raw data. So I am originally I'm doing this on print, paper printouts and a ruler. And then I find something where I can do it on a screen, but I'm still manually doing it. But I didn't discover this until after it was done. So it was a hundred cases like this of just adding it up and then seeing what was the overall prevalence to know if you would, that the line goes straight, goes left or goes right. So if you would think of a three-sided coin or a three-sided die. So if it was a, a six-sided die, you know, you've got a one in six probability of any given thing. So, you know, what was the probability that you're going to have either a straight line, a left or right, and then just added it up. So that was where that came in. Um, and then the other one was uh, started a little bit later, but it followed the exact same uh, trend or the same idea. It had to do with the leg checks. So, okay, well, what are the possibilities? Well, if you're lying straight prone, you could be either even short left or short right. And I followed the, the literature because this is oftentimes the case, especially for uh, young docs. Oh, I think it's level. If it's too close to tell, you can't know. So yeah. I said, all right, you need to get three millimeters or an eighth of an inch margin of error. And I was using the, the leg check devices. And again, I did this for only their very first um first one. So this was again, 100 consecutive. These weren't just hundred random. These were 100 consecutive new patients. And I then looked to see what was the prevalence of short leg in the straight prone position, the dare field finding changes in the cervical syndrome in the straight prone changes in the dare field position, and then the prills. And I also had to set the threshold because I, I know that there are times where, you know, even one to two millimeters, you know, can be the difference for the end. I understand that. But for research purposes, I said, no, it has to be abundantly clear. It's got to be a three millimeter change. That's kind of what the, the established yeah. research stand is to know that what you're doing is, you know, quite legitimate and you're not just hallucinating things. And, and what you're referencing so is inter-examiner inter reliability. Correct. This was all in, uh, no, intra. Well, the research you're referencing is that, that someone else could see that same finding consistently. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was saying I was the, I was the only one who was collecting these data. But that one eighth uh, or three millimeters that you're referencing, if folks are wondering like where to get that number, there has been research done on the intra and inter examiner reliability of leg checks. And they determined that that's about the threshold where it, it becomes below one eighth of an inch or below three millimeters, it starts to, you know, the reliability starts to go down the drain. So that's, yeah, that's why we chose that, that say, threshold. Uh, yep. Yeah. There are some that say it's really, it's between four and six and others say that you can detect 
detect changes when you're using the instrumented compressive devices that you can detect legitimate changes as slight as a millimeter or two. So what I says, I could split the difference. I think that average person is going to be able to detect a change of three. Yeah, for sure. Okay, proceed. Okay, so collected the data and then ran some basic, I mean, we can't do, I, I'm not the, the statistician, I'm not the research writer and all this sort of stuff. This was because I, I wanted to know this for myself, to know if the, um, the procedures were, uh, you know, had legitimacy. Again, I'm not claiming validity. These were more done to see, okay, is there, based on probabilities, you know, is there legitimacy here? So where I might actually start, I'll start with the thermography and then we'll loop back to the articular misalignment. Okay. So what I ended up finding was that the line was straight in the thermog thermography reading 40% of the time, and that it was near equal probability about 30% where the line would go left or the line would go right. And so what does that, you know, suggest? That suggests that if I was to take a random person and run a, a thermology reading up the back of their neck, that when I would quantify, you know, I would see something like that, the, the, just the overall character of their reading. Now, the reason that this is significant, it has to do with the nature of pattern analysis. So if I was to say to you, okay, John, let's say that you had a coin, again, a two-sided coin. What's the probability that you're going to, you know, flip heads? 50%. 50%. Now, what would be the probability of getting two consecutive heads? Oh, shoot. I don't know. This is like uh, one of those um, permutations. Like, what is it? 25? It, one in it, four? Correct. Because what you would do is you would multiply their individual outcomes. So you would take 50% times 50% or one half times one half equals one fourth. Well, what's the probability of three consecutive readings like that then? Okay. Then 16th. you'd be looking at one eighth. Yep. No, no, close. Oh, well, yeah. So one yeah, half. I got you. Half, half, half. Exactly. So that was where these numbers I thought would be very interesting because if hypothetically you've got the probability that the line can cut to the left and it's about 30%, okay, so 0.3. Well, what happens, what would it mean then if you took that reading of that same individual three times, at least 15 minutes apart, there should be signs of variability, shouldn't there? That's what yeah. normal physiology is. But what if you see the exact same feature three consecutive times? Well, what you would do is you would multiply that times 0.3 times 0.3 times 0.3. So the probability of that occurring is 2.7%. In other words, there is a 97.3% chance that that was not random. Right. That there is something actually going on what does that what is that called significance now again this is not demonstrating validity and i'm not even saying statistical saying i'm saying this is based on probabilities mathematically significant yeah and so think about them and you do a, whatever you do whether it's an adjustment a little tickle 
give them a, a shot of coffee, and that finding changes. Then what it means is there's a 97.3% probability that what you did is what changed that reading. Right. Very cool. So that was the original baseline, you know, as far as what the, the data suggested there. In other words, wow, there really is something to this uh, thermography thing. You know, we said once is an accident, twice is a pattern, or twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern. Yeah, a pattern that is going to be 97.3%, you know, odds are it's going to be the real deal. And what that also then did, and this goes beyond this particular study, is because I then, for the, the purpose of the textbook, um, also needed to define and develop some of the protocols by which we could know when is it that a pattern is actually significant. And that, that was really the, the whole focus. So for example, you know, you're looking at a, an individual thermography reading. Well, how much of that graph actually has to be a matching pattern right. in order for you to quantify it as a match? Yeah. So that was where, you know, these preliminary data were necessary in order to develop that algorithm. And interestingly, I presented a, an algorithm to the Blair Society. Oh, geez, it was probably about four years ago now. Um, and it turns out that it was pretty much spot on. It was based on just simply put the, the rules of thumb, you know, developed, adapted from BJ, from um uh, Dr. Duff, from Dr. Crowden, you know, all, all of these, um, from Dr. Sherman, the people who, of course, you know, didn't develop this. And so to find out that these rules of thumb actually held up when comparing it with some of the math, that was what, um, you know, I found very, very interesting from this, uh, this uh, particular initial study. Very cool. And just so that, to give, if folks are, are sort of new to this conversation about thermography and it's like, I'm missing some of this here. What are we, what are we doing here? And, and the Blair technique and, and a lot of upper cervical techniques, not all, paraspinal thermography and, and Jeff's referencing the Titron thermography scanner is uh, one of the key, or if not foundational, you know, objective tests that we do pre and post adjustment to see, you know, what's the neurophysiological state of a patient coming in if we need to intervene. And then if we did intervene, what was the neurophysiological state after that intervention? So we use what we call pattern analysis to observe, you know, what characteristics um, represent a situation that requires an adjustment and not. And so we're trained in pattern analysis. We use this Titronic software uh, to measure these constants and variables, you know, these, these characteristics of the thermography scan that would indicate different situations. Uh, and so Jeff's breaking that down into a little bit more detail to say, yeah, these things that we've been doing and that we've been trained in, that we've been taught in, do have mathematical significance. And uh, as a at a as a sort of springboard for um, clinical significance, you know, that becomes a more interesting conversation. And this is a, another important thing that I just want to add on top of that not just a measure of neurophysiological function, but specifically sympathetic. In other words, autonomic function. This is not a measure of pain or even of proprioception. This is a measure of internal body function because sympathetics are gonna be influencing smooth muscles, specifically those involved with blood flow and lymph flow. If you change that, you have the potential to change the physiology of everything in the it's body. True. It's not just 
Suddenly, these measures is not just, oh, okay, you know, did you help a patient out of pain? Did you change a person's neurophysiological state towards a state of health? Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. And to be able to just do that and not just say we're doing that, because in the chiropractic, a lot of times it's like, you know, I felt a high spot. I loosened it up or smushed it down, you know, and we said that was a subluxation and I adjusted it. And then we imply all these health benefits. But if you didn't measure it, it's kind of like you don't really know that you did that. And you don't mm-hmm. really have like a solid physiological basis for that. But this this creates a lot of um, a lot of confidence in, you know, as a doctor in what you did and what you purported that you did and, you know, the evidence that you did it or you didn't. Mm hmm. And so, and for folks that might not have exposure to pattern analysis or even thermography training, there are ways to, to cut the learning curve and to, and to make this a lot simpler than, you know, it, it sounds at first glance. Like when I got into upper cervical in school in student clinic, it was like, oh, great. There's the Titron scanners and the toggle tables. Good luck. And it's like, well, what am I looking at here? And you would pull different you know, clinic docs aside and say, can you help me with this pattern analysis? Like, how do I know what I'm looking at? And, and honestly, like the best answer I got was like, well, you know, it kind of like, if it looks the same, it's a pattern. It's like, what do you mean? Like based on what I'm, I'm just looking at squiggly lines and what that meant is they didn't know either. Cool. Buddy. Fortunately, and this is a absolutely shameless plug. This is because I, when I was first introduced to thermography, same thing. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It's like, how in the hell is this supposed to be objective? Are you saying this squiggly line looks like this squiggly line by what measure? Um, So when I learned it, you know, it's like, this is how it's properly done. I then developed some other teaching resources. So on the Blair Technique website, you go to the store for members and for non-members, there are... How many hours is that now? It's probably somewhere. I think it's to the vicinity of around six to eight hours of this is training. This is how you break it down. This is how you do it. Yeah. So and, and you put beat those me to up, it, but that, together. Yeah. That's what I was getting yeah, at. Put it like... originally together a few years ago, but then updated them uh, just in the last few months uh, because of some new updates with the software. Very cool. But you could sit down with that and, and literally in a, on a Saturday when you're not working. And I know everybody says this, but go in the office the next week and have a, a good level of confidence that you know how to do what you're supposed to do with pattern analysis. And so I've, I've heard a lot of people that probably weren't trained properly go like, I can't really like, I, I don't have confidence in thermography. I don't do it because I don't know what I'm looking at. I just rely on leg checks, which is fine. But now we have resources available to get you up to speed. So that excuse goes out the window. And uh, for the cost of the of the module, it's insane how much value is is there. And, and literally, you can go from no knowledge of thermography to very proficient in pattern analysis in uh, a couple hours' time. So thanks for putting that together. And if you're if you're in that camp where you're like, this is not my thing, I don't know about this, it can be pretty quick. So go get your hands on that module and get to work. And the ridiculous thing about it too, and I think that you would agree with me that when you actually learn how to do it and you realize that it's not actually that it's not that hard no. learning how to do it. it's like wait that's it no. but it is so profound like for me it was a game changer when i first learned it in my practice so absolutely any of the lessons that i've learned if I've, I've been able to distill it so that you can learn that a sliver of the time awesome and i think that that would make us all way way better as chiropractors no matter what technique we use agreed and it's demystified you know and that there are sometimes these people that 
they know the stuff and they make it look like, oh, I'm the, I'm the guy that knows, you know, like I've been doing this for so long that I've got this, you know, I've got this special touch with pattern analysis that you'll have someday. And it's like, it doesn't need to be like that. If you're, if you're in school, you can do great upper cervical work if you have a titron and a toggle table and you know how to get a proper mm-hmm. pattern, the listings and all that other stuff that, that comes along with it. But man, pattern analysis is huge in, in having that confidence. So mm-hmm. um, you don't have to have a million years worth of experience or have sat under the teaching of some great you could pick this thing up, you know, if you went to national or some school that doesn't even teach upper cervical and be pretty good. So anyway, uh, on the thermography side of it, any conclusions or last comments you want to uh, add to that portion before we move on to like checks? No, I think that that's pretty much it for the thermography, but in brief, it, um, it finds out that the general rule of rules of thumb are, they have legitimacy, which is good. And, and Dr. Hanna presented these findings at the uh, Australian Chiropractic Association's yearly meeting. So I, there are poster presentations that he put together for this that are on the Blair Facebook page. So I'm going to pin those under the post with this um, uh, podcast when it's released so that you can look at the graphics, look at the representation of the data and kind of get get eyeballs on that. It really helps to kind of clarify some of the talking points. Uh, and that'll be true for the, um, the leg checks and the misalignments, too, which we're about to talk about. So, um, okay, so great. We've got, you know, this is one of our indicators. We also use a leg check day to day. So same conversation (laughs) on, on a a different indicator. Um, what did you find on that, you know, three sided left, right, even side of things? Yeah. So firstly, I was surprised, um, with some of the findings that I have here and, I am certain that there are a great many people who do leg checks who will disagree with me vehemently on the data. They will say, what? No, I find way more than that. Hmm. I'm just telling you, this is what I found and I measured it. So first up, straight prone, basically an equal coin flip, short left, short right, or even plus or minus three millimeters. I found that they were effectively the same. So what that suggests there, and again, this was, I was taking these data before I would actually look at a, this does not correlate with anybody's particular, you know, misalignment whatsoever. This is just a lion face down. This is what I see. So equal, pretty much across the board there. The dare field, you know, a positive versus a negative dare field, um, 50-50. So that also surprised me. Blair, when he did uh, previous research, he found uh, that, you know, there was a a slight predominance. I think of it was a a right short leg um, and that, you know, he found short legs about 80% of the time. um, And he found a dare field, I think, about 80% of the time as well. I found it 50-50. And we're we're talking about, it was like 51-49, something like that, or 52-48. So that was interesting. The next one, cervical rotation test. And this was quantified as either be a, a change, plus or minus, with mm-hmm. left or head, you know, rotation. Only about 20% of the time. Hmm. Interesting. It, it only showed 20% of the time. Exactly. Which is a fascinating additional discussion, because when we're talking about the nature of you know, is it an indicator for upper cervical involvement? Right. You know, C1 relative to occiput. No, it isn't because C1 relative to occiput is flexion extension. 
Right. And well, what about C2 or C3? It's like, no, C1 and C2 is what produces, you know, axial rotation. And C1, C2 is usually nothing more than a compensation. Compensation for what? Potentially anything. So only 20% of the time. Then you throw in the mix of the do the same test in the Deerfield position, and then it drops down to under 10% of the time. So even less. Hmm. Then if you're looking at the prills, 70% of the time, I found nothing. No yeah. change whatsoever. I found that the vertical and the radial, they showed up about 10% of the time. And then the medial and the um, the medial and the lateral, they showed up about 15% of the time. But that was it. Yeah. Now, the way that I then interpret the, the data first and foremost is that you cannot assign meaning to any one particular finding. So that is, oh, okay, well, it's a short right leg. So it must be an atlas fill in the blank. It's like, no, there's a 60% chance you're going to be wrong. Yeah. Or with even any of the others, including a cervical rotation, and even with the prills, you cannot assign meaning based on a single finding. In addition to that, what I found was that the most useful indicator, because, uh, well, actually, let me rewind here a little bit. You were talking earlier about pattern analysis, right? Mm -hmm. You can pattern anything. Patterning is not simply a thermography protocol. It's also, it's a leg check. So think about this for a second. You got to pick the new patient comes in and you check their legs and you see right short. And then you check them again. And now it's left short. There was no pattern there to begin with. Right. Only you checked it once. You checked it twice. You checked it three times, 30%, times, 0.3 times, 0.3. Okay. Now you're talking about a legitimate finding that you can hang your hat on. So this is why I actually did this particular study. I wanted to find out how significant is this in terms of clinical decision-making. And what I found effectively was that because it, okay, if there was a legitimate point of pattern for a prill test or for a cervical rotation test, it was highly significant. In other words, the probability of you getting a positive vertical three times in a row right. is so low that it's almost pathognomonic if it was to show up. But because it's so relatively rare, the most valuable indicators, the ones that you're going to be using the most, is actually the straight prone check. That's it. Hmm. Which is interesting because that's what Blair found. Right. So I was just going to say value in using the Darefield protocol in using the cervical rotation test Blair said he didn't find any use in them that the only one that he found actually carried any weight was the the straight prone and the uh, the prill tests were not on anybody's radar back then so what my findings are is they actually match Blair's original um, conclusion unless I repeat unless, one of those other points should be demonstrated to be a legitimate point of pattern. Yeah. The, the, and the key is, go ahead. You can finish. I was going to say there's one other thing then with regards to the prills in particular that's important then for those of us who use the Blair technique and use a leg check. So the thermography and the standard leg check, 
Those are what we use not to determine what to adjust, but when to adjust. The prills do not tell us when to adjust. We have already made a decision based on their principal thermography and based on their leg length inequality that this person needs an adjustment. The prills then assist us to determine which adjustment is indicated. And of course, a prill in and of itself is nothing unless confirmed with a challenge test. Yeah, and, and for folks, people get real emotional about this stuff for some reason. Like if you're a big leg check oh, person yeah. or a big thermography oh, yeah. person, you're, you're screaming I'm at the people, no, no, no. Well, so here's what we'll say. Number one, this is not like official Blair Society research. These are Dr. Hannah's findings. I would invite you to do your own research and compare the findings. The more data that we can, you know, aggregate, the more we could build that out. And if you're one of those people that goes, nope, I'm I'm seeing a, a right short leg, you know, most of the time, you gotta go back and say, like, is there something in your patient placement or data collection that would influence that finding? You know, if you've got some finding that's exaggerated either way, you gotta be mindful of the variables that might influence, you know, that finding uh in that data point. And and for Doc here having a system, and he mentioned regular using the leg check devices earlier, uh, these little, well, some people call them leg check boots, but these little measurement devices that go on the foot so that you're eyeballing, you're not eyeballing the bottom of a dirty, you know, worn out shoe. You're looking at a, you know, a flat surface with a measuring, uh, with a, like a, how, how long are the intervals there? 16th or millimeter of an it measuring uh, device on there. Each one is eighth of an inch. So yeah. three so, minutes. Yeah. And, and the idea with that is doing it in a very systematic way so that you're actually comparing apples to apples. And you can say, I've taken the patient got on the table crooked. They got there and wiggled their hips. They, you know, sat up and started talking to me and then laid back down or all these other things that could happen. And you're just in the flow of checking patients a little bit different way. This data was collected on the first visit. Right. So, so it's interesting as, as a, you know, emotional and, uh, you know, sort of like firm in their convictions. A lot of people are about either of these findings. Um, these are observations and they're to be considered for you to look at your own, you know, your own patient population and, and maybe on your next, you know, 25, 50, 100 new patients, you kind of slow down, do things in a very, very detail oriented specific way and record your own findings and, and see what you find. I'd be really interested to hear. So if anybody does that, I'm all ears. We'll have you on the podcast and you can share your findings and then we'll set up the next great chiropractic debate, like checks, Hannah versus whoever. <laughs> yeah, that'll be, a, like I said, I know that these data that in some ways they're going to, they're going to cause a fight. Um, but I also did the same thing with this data that I did on the tomography. I needed to know this for the sake of the textbook to know, is there any statistical legitimacy to where and how we are doing leg checks? And what these data help show is they actually supported the existing conclusions that we use. So it doesn't change the pro it actually, curiously enough, this does not change the protocol that we use at all. But what it does do is it actually allows us to become more precise in drawing what the conclusion is exactly. so that we can make a better decision. Exactly. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. As a doctor, you have to make clinical decisions to affect the patient's outcomes. And you're going to collect your data and you're going to do with that what you need to. Um, so we're not implying any, you know, any key conclusions here to say that, you know, if you see a cervical syndrome, that doesn't mean 
you know, that they don't need adjusted because it was 20% of the time on, on his preliminary study, but it's, you know, weighed a little bit differently based on his findings. So you have to weigh all that stuff. You have to, you know, create that total subluxation pattern profile for the patient involving all these indicators. And then you monitor those changes over time. And, you know, I uh, talked to Dr. Bulow about this way back. And, you know, for some patients, maybe a certain, you know, indicator is weighed heavily. And for another patient, the other indicators weighed more heavily. And you have to kind of figure out as a doctor, you know, what those, uh, you know, what those neurological tells, as it were, would be for the patient so that you can keep them on track. And there's no perfect finding, right? So if anybody goes, bathermography, if they took an Advil six weeks ago, you know, that's going to mess up their scan. Yes, maybe. Leg checks, it's a lumbar. It's a pelvis. It's yes, maybe. Right? So we're not saying that it's it's all or nothing on this stuff. It's There's a lot of variables that could affect any one test, but we need to, uh, you know, all the more reason to be that much more thorough. And another thing I'm hearing is you should probably see it three times in a row before you adjust them at all. Um, you're not just, you have to, you have to, you for it to be a pattern. To. So exactly. let's run a scenario here. Let's run a scenario here. Someone shows up and they, in their first visit and you do your assessment and you've got your, your paraspinal thermography pattern. You've got your leg check findings. They throw, they show up for their exam report. Let's say you're going to do your first adjustment that day. The leg check findings don't match, but the thermography does. Now you've got a little bit of a pickle. You've got, you know, two subsequent findings on one test, you know, or three, depending on how many you did that first day. And then not on the second, you know, there are situations where you might not adjust on that first day and, and must, most people be going like, are you kidding me? They, they obviously need to be adjusted if they haven't been before, you know, for the reliability of your indicators, maybe you haven't got the whole picture yet, you know? And so, yes, they need to be adjusted, but for that pattern to be rock solid, maybe you need a little bit more time to, to monitor that. And, and uh, folks that are familiar with how things went at the BJ Palmer Research Clinic, it was like very tightly controlled, you know, and there was a lot of data collected before that first adjustment and after before a subsequent adjustment was made. So I think we can all slow down and do a little bit better job of this and kind of we call it slipping and checking. But the idea is, you know, really make sure that you're you're doing a proper, you know, proper workup in the beginning so that monitoring and managing the patient after the fact doesn't get confusing because you had incomplete data to start with. So on the, this is, this is all kind of on the neurophysiological side of the testing. We're going to need something to adjust, right? And in, in the upper cervical spine, we're not going to go by feel. We're not going to go by palpation or any of these other indicators. We're going to have radiographic evidence of a misalignment in the Blair technique. We take the views he mentioned or CBCT to look at the articulations of the upper cervical spine, occiput to C1, C1 to C2, C2 to C3, C3 to C4, and so on, on the right and left sides, which is individually, you know, measure any misalignment on those articulations. So uh, that becomes the full workup, right? and amongst other things, but that becomes our, our bread and butter for daily checks and what we need to do to, to check the patient. So on the uh, imaging and articular side of things, what findings did you, did you come up with? Because we've got a few different listings at, at each segment. And so a lot more data to collect here and to compare. Yep. So for um, things that we ended up getting, this was a total of 300. Um, so when I presented it, I had gotten 280. And then by the time that I finished all of the data, it was 300 consecutive people. Um, and just for clarity, I did not make a distinction between 
for example, an ASL or an ASR or an ASL plus ASR. I said, okay, these are four misalignments because as we know, yes, we like to think that the larger of the two misalignments is always a significant one, but not always if there's not biomechanical congruence. And so I did not make distinctions between majors. I, I couldn't do that. So this sure. is just, this is what I see. ASPI. And so, it, exactly. So we had four categories. Number one, neutral. Number two was an anterior. Number three was a posterior. And then number four was a rotational. By rotational, I mean an AS on one side and a PI on the other to where it does something, you know, that we would think of as rotation. So what did we, what did we ended up finding? So at C1, 78% of the time they were anterior misalignments, Mm. 11% of the time Mm. they were neutral. So this is fascinating because let's think about this for a sec. When you're in chiropractic school, how do you learn to adjust Atlas? Everything P to A. Most of the time, most of it's P to A. Exactly. Or you're sometimes told adjust a posterior occiput. Okay. Well, that's at least congruent, but does it necessarily clear based on the nature of the mechanics of that move? Now, what's very possible, so I don't draw, you know, an unreasonable conclusion is either one, this suggests that the majority of people are being adjusted wrong in chiropractic, or what it may also suggest is that people who have gone to the general chiropractor, when they have posterior misalignments, they already cleared them, which then, because typically people who come to see the upper cervical chiropractor, they've already been to the general chiropractor. So I don't want to assign undue meaning here that we are not that to say that ASs are always more common than PIs. But in a Blair practice, and in particular, this is useful because I could explain these data to other people. I would say, you know, if a lot, if you've been to the other chiropractor, but you weren't getting results, what I find in my practice is that they were in the right spot, but they didn't have the right direction. Odds are I'm going to find something similar for you. And that means that we're going to be able to do something different to help you out. So that's what these data gave me the confidence of saying no guarantee, but based on the odds, this is what I think I'm going to find. That's funny. You say it that way. Because my first thought was when the general chiropractor thought he was on C1, he's probably more like on C3. By the time he well, I'm being I'm being nice about it. Don't worry, I'll be <laughs> I'll be nasty a little bit later. Okay, we don't again with, with any data. You know, it does have the indication, but then we also can't draw you know unfounded conclusions. We can't go of too course. far. Um, the next one was um, C two C two relative to C three at the facet. I found fifty four percent of the time was anterior, twenty eight percent of the time was neutral. Now this is actually remarkably different from data that uh, Dr. Blair had found. He found that there were far more PIs at C2. Now, this could be because of how I was, um, you know, studying or influencing the, or or reading the data. Um, And perhaps even a little of my own evolution in being able to read the views. And I use this and, you know, I've adapted this into, you know, teaching this here. Um, Dr. Stenberg, what's the typical shape of a, a lower cervical facet, the articulation? Well, the typical, if you're going below, 
you know, C2, they're going to be a little bit more sagely oriented. They're sagely oriented, yes, but the articular margin is actually pretty round. Oh, I see what you're so saying. So where the yep. two things like that, yeah. So even though like the shape of my hand from finger to palm is oblong, yeah. the articular parts the palm. Right. And so I think that I personally started getting better at reading my films. And this, you know, you think I should well, know better by now. Um, so if there's any point of data where I am not a hundred percent sure here, where I think that that trend might be a little bit off, I think that PIs are more common, but nevertheless, these are the data and 300 consecutive people. That's a, a decent amount of people. So I'd be, have to be pretty far off, but same thing. How is it the way that most people have a C2 adjusted, especially through chiropractic school, body yeah. left, body right. <laughs> posterior rotations like no the majority are either neutral or anterior yeah so yeah and what, what, and what doc's referencing and, and on cts this is really fun to play around with and look at but even in like if you go back and look at your spinal anatomy books and they have those cross sections through zygapophyseal joints in the cervical spine you know and you see people post these things all the times like look at this massive arsc2 and it's like well that's a, the bone for sure <laughs> but it's not necessarily a weight-bearing portion of the joint. And uh, that's where we're most concerned with. And and so that, you know, that, and Jay Hollowell with his CBCT course and things like that has helped me to differentiate between, you know, this is the anterior part of the, you know, lamina, but it's not necessarily part of the joint. Or I'm sorry, it's starting mm -hmm. to get into that root of the transverse process. So there's all these different, exactly. there's all these different, you know, portions of the joint that we want to analyze. And and if you think about what Dr. Blair was working with, you know, he had to worry about how old his, his chemicals were, you know, the quality of the film, was it staying, you know, plenty dark, the exposure, like there were so many factors with plain film radiography that could influence just how clear that margin was and how clear you could see that cortical, you know, thickness, that sclerotic part of the joint there that, uh, you know, you having digital radio radiography and then CBCT beyond that gives us so much more, you know, clarity of image to look at. Yeah. So. So that was the two. So then the next level down, I'm going to lump the three, the four and the five all together. So three and four, I found posterior misalignments just under 50% of the time for each. And C5 about 33% of the time. Now, I couldn't make a distinction, again, if these were genuine subluxations, if they were compensations. Me personally, I oftentimes found a lot of C3, C4 involvement as significant minors. But check this out. Neutral. C3 was 20%. C4 was 35%. And C5 on C6, 65% of the time was normal. Interesting. So a couple of little thoughts about this. Remember, we're referring to the facets. Right. I'm not talking about the discs because great many of these, I can just tell you observationally, they did have disc damage, but they were still neutrally articulated, which would suggest, at least to me, and this is a hypothesis, is disc is actually part of the motion segment that's compensating for stress elsewhere. There's no misalignment there. And that then is a potential challenge then if you think, well, where do so many chiropractors focus all of their effort? C2 yeah. and then C5, C6. Why? Because it's the one with the most amount of disc damage. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually articularly misaligned. Now, in addition to that, what I found in terms of 
rotational misalignments. So here we go from the top, right? All the way to, so C1 through C5, 7%, 6%, 10%, 6%, 0%. Hmm. In other words, rotational is flat across the board. So when we talk about rotary breaks mm -hmm. or rotatory moves, you need to be able to get motion using that kind of a procedure. The vast majority of the time, that would not be an appropriate procedure. Why? Because that's not how the articulations have or haven't misaligned. And that one was the more of the, the controversial one from the general chiropractic standpoint. I think that, you know, those of us in the upper cervical world were like, I knew it, I knew it. But, you know, that one there, it, you know, th there's a time and a place, you know, for moves like that. But my point being is that that move or those kinds of moves may not be as appropriate in the percent of cases that we think. And again, these are people who have been to the general chiropractor and, you know, have not gotten the results that they were looking for. So it's possible that in the real population, this is way higher, but they already, quote unquote, they fixed it. But this is what was typically going to show up then into an upper cervical practice, or at least my practice. Sure. A hundred percent. And there's a bias that this is not a random sample of people out walking the street in Australia right. there, right? These are people presenting to a chiropractic office for help with a specific problem. So it's not, and this is true with a lot of chiropractic research done in a clinical setting. It's like, you know, the obvious thing is this is not a randomized sample of people, but um, mm -hmm. you know, it's across the whole population, but there's yeah. it's good, it, luck it getting, a, uh, good luck getting, good luck getting, I was just yeah. going to say, good luck getting approval to take um, diagnostic imaging of a random sample of people out in the population. Yeah, let alone asymptomatic or whatever else. And this is exactly. this stuff is so fascinating because again, we're we're coming from a certain perspective chiropractically, which is Blair technique. You know, this is how we analyze these things and what we deem to be significant. And we have certain assumptions that we make. You know, when we look at imaging and we uh, you know measure misalignments and things like that. And it's by no means the whole picture, right? I think I, I wonder, and, and folks have done and are doing studies like this, just because something is, you know, statically aligned or misaligned, what happens when it's in motion, right? Because we know the spine is, a, is, is, is often and constantly in motion. It's not, we don't just sit there in a neutral spinal position like we take our, our images all the time. So what happens when that thing is under load and is under motion and, and is, you know, engaging coupled motion and all the muscles and tissues surrounding the area become involved? What happens in that dynamic situation? And that's a that's a different conversation, but a very interesting one to think about. OK, we might be seeing a, a misalignment or not. But when it matters most with the spine in motion and all those neurological tissues around there, um, you know, being affected by that, what else happens? And and does that picture change? And anyone who's looked at DMX studies or has had flexion extension views taken, it's like, sometimes what you see in a neutral position is very different than what you see, you know, when there's motion involved. So just another, you know, just another thing to, to ponder on. Well, it wasn't part of this, but that was actually something that I did look at uh, an awful long time ago. I had done a, a knee chest course where they were doing the uh, the motion images. And I was curious, you know, how legitimate is this? And it was just, I did this, you know, for like maybe 10 people, but I was taking the, the Blair views and then I was also looking at some of these other views. And, you know, again, very small, small population, but I actually found it matched. 
vast majority of the time. So it's like, okay, no, I, yeah. I don't need to do these views here. Now, same breath, completely agreeing with what you say, that concept that all subluxations are misalignments, but not all misalignments are subluxations. My personal fascination has always been on the mechanical incongruencies. Yeah. And I wasn't yeah. looking at that in these particular sets of data. That's what I always look at clinically. So for example, you've got an ASR, an ARS, and then a PLI, like Sesame Street. Which one of one these, of these things belong? is not like the other? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And oftentimes, at least what I'm finding observationally is that that matches very characteristic findings, not pathodemonic, but that can be used in the same way as, you know, prill indicators or as, you know, arguably even direct temperature readings. If you're looking at the, the thermographs, that that correlates very interestingly. It's a neat thing that we have so much more data than all of our predecessors so much data, we don't know yet to, what to do with it. So it's kind of the, the next growth, the next uh, evolution, you know, every quote unquote answered question, even though of course there are no completely answered questions, but um, you know, every bit of information that we get leads us and allows us to answer or to ask better questions. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the thing about revisiting our indicators periodically and redoing this research is like, let's stay on top of that. And let's keep that conversation going. I think it's easy when when you've got uh, you've got tests with clinical utility that you know you can reliably get patients the results that they need. Right? We can clear them out. We can get them holding. We can have them feeling better. We could do our chiropractic job with these people, knowing that we've got these indicators. Doesn't mean that we don't uh, we shouldn't periodically kind of reassess where we're at and, and see if we could do that much better. Right? Because it's good to be it's good to be effective, but. Could we get these people to hold longer? Could we clear them out more completely? You know, could we handle more complex situations? Can we, you know, uh, increase our efficacy with all the stuff that we're doing? And can we consider more variables? And I think all that stuff is just kind of the evolution of the art. And each generation is kind of tasked with, you know, taking the torch, doing something with it, passing the torch, right? So the, the time that we're in, we're heavy on imaging. We've got a lot of cool, you know, we've got CBCTs and upright MRIs and digital motion studies and all this cool flow studies and stuff going on. I think we're in a we're in a time where we can really kind of take the structural analysis to the next level uh, and bring all these different technique perspectives together to to really build this thing out in a more you know more comprehensive way. And then maybe the next generation with some sort of you know whatever AI you know data aggregation collection interpretation thing might come up might be able to uh, you know do something with that. And uh, on the neurophysiological testing side of it, maybe add some cool technology to the table. But it's it's fun. It's interesting. I think it's it inspires curiosity. It makes you it makes you like stop and appreciate what we're able to do, and and to uh, you know be conscientious. You know, with not just your assessment, but your patient visits. You know, and and each each opportunity that you have to work with someone and and uh, you know do this stuff very thoughtfully. Cool. Well, uh, for any folks that have feedback. You know, if you're listening along and you've got, you know, something you've observed over your years of practice, decades of practice, if you've got something to add to the conversation, I welcome it. You know, we want to definitely bring perspectives to the table. Like we said in the beginning and throughout, you know, Dr. Hanab was curious. And so he he ran the course of these uh, tests in his own office here just for his own edification, but then also to do something with it for the rest of us. So, um, you know, I would encourage you if you have comments, feedback, suggestions about how to do it better, things that you found 
bring them to the table. Let me know. You know, we'll we'll put those out there uh, alongside this episode and 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 carry the conversation on. If you come from a, a different technique perspective and you maybe have a different you know point of view to contribute, I'm open to that too. I mean, we all have our ways of doing things and characterizing subluxations. And I always tell students, you know, a a, a subluxation is not technique dependent, right? If a patient is subluxated, you know, that is a that is a state that they that they have physically and physiologically and neurologically. And with our techniques, we try to characterize and measure that, you know, uh, as reliably as we can. So, you know, you could take the same patient and analyze them in different offices and, and have a lot of consistency, but maybe some differences too. And so uh, I think it's all, it's all interesting and it all has merit. Uh, let's, let's just continue to, to level up and do better, especially as we approach a new year and we, and we think about the future and the, you know, the current state of upper cervical care, you know, let's uh, all do our part. Uh, any last thoughts, expression. Just that old expression: conflicts clarify. Hmm. Absolutely, and and if you if you're if some of this stuff rubs you the wrong way, it's a good good time to to wonder why and to explore that and you know figure out what we can do to to smooth this out. Because at the end of the day, with upper like cervical care, we want to get better results quicker with fewer adjustments, right? And that's what it always comes down to. Yep, it's like that uh, that meme with the guy sipping his coffee, you know, at the uh, the little uh, bench on the, the university campus. Fill in the blank, change my mind. I will yep. go where the I will go where the data direct me. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. really, isn't that isn't that what best evidence based practice is? It is using the data to make better decisions. So please show me some awesome data that makes me say, wow, I need to check that out. Absolutely. And so uh, we appreciate you sharing your, your observations. And a lot of folks, a lot of folks will, you know, they'll see stuff in their clinic. They may even tabulate it. They may even kind of like document it, but a lot of times they're a little apprehensive to share it with others, whether it's for, you know, being criticized or for, you know, appearing like they're trying to, you know, appear smarter than other people or put other things down. So some, I know there are folks that collect this information and sit on it. So I appreciate you, you know, and being willing to share it, not just here in our little forum, but also, you know, with a, a large group of chiropractors back in Australia. So um, appreciate you doing that work. And for all you do for the Blair Society and Upper Cervical Care, we're excited for this next season of life and practice for you up there in Washington and excited to hear about uh, what you learn and how you grow through that. And uh, if, if anybody's been wanting to get in touch with Dr. Hannah. He's finally here in a reasonable time zone so we can coordinate and communicate a lot easier. And uh, that's exciting to me. We'll be able to see you at all the events now, uh, not just the ones that you're quote allowed to escape the country and go to. So uh, appreciate you being on. I think we'll definitely, be, we'll definitely be carrying on these okay. conversations a little bit more frequently now. Yeah. I've missed out on uh, three years. So I'm looking forward on, um, being more involved, getting to see people directly and not just remotely, but I'm not, I'm not a very hard person to, to find either. Yeah. And he may even, uh, I'm, I'm just putting a bug in his ear here. He may even find his way onto some chiropractic college campuses to support your clubs. I know there's a lot of student buzz and a lot of opportunity there to uh, help pour into the students. So we may, we may even make that happen. I would love to be invited to your campus so that I can get banned from it. Thank you very much. <laughs> on that note, I think that's a perfect time to wrap up again. Thanks doc. And thanks for everyone who's been supportive and listening to the podcast these last couple of years, 2023, 
is going to be really cool with the podcast. We're going to bring some different types of content. So definitely subscribe and pay attention because uh, it's really going to build you up and, uh, and help you grow and succeed in life and practice this year. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.